near-death experience podcast, an ongoing exploration of spiritually transformative experiences, including NDEs and other phenomena, in order to elucidate the ineffable and better understand our spirituality. All episodes are available at ndepodcast.org. The views expressed and opinions given by the individual hosts and guests are not necessarily those of NDE Podcast, the NDERF, any sponsors, or for that matter, anyone else. In the end, the only opinion that really matters is yours. Near-Death Experience Podcast, item number 383, March 10th, 2022. The NDEs of Chris B., Laura N., and Muriel N. This episode contains a strong disclaimer from me and Shaz. Do not attempt suicide in order to try to experience an NDE. Welcome to Near-Death Experience Podcast, the official source of audio accounts for the Near-Death Experience Research Foundation. I'm Chaz Hathaway, author of Life in the Spirit World, What Near-Death Experiences May Teach About Life on the Other Side, as well as the music album Home, both of which can be found on our website, neardeathexperiencepodcast.org, or ndepodcast.org. Um, I will say, just because there's been questions about it, it, the the one that most financially helps is the audio version of the book. Not only because of the highest price, but because I am completely self-publishing that version. And uh, so I, I just briefly mention that and also say thank you, thank you so much to all of you that are supporting the podcast in any way by the Patreon by uh, the purchasing the book or, or just one-time contributions. I can't tell you how much that is helping and supporting uh, my efforts to continue to do this. I, I, it really does touch my life. And I hope that my efforts are touching your lives as well. Today we're going to share the experience of three different uh, near-death experiencers. Chris, Lara, and Muriel, and these are fairly short accounts, but what I've noticed is that even in these short accounts, there is a massive amount of things going on in them, and it's it's mostly a, a lack of detailed writing than it is a lack of quality of experience it, 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 from what I've seen, and I will apologize in advance for my voice. I'm just starting to get over some big massive cold of some kind and uh, also just before I was ready to push record I was eating some Triscuits and one went down the wrong pipe and so I had a coughing fit so I'm catching up on that. (laughs) So anyway this is Chris from enderf.org. Chris says during a suicide attempt I jumped out of a moving car and landed headfirst on the ground Then I was in another state of consciousness. God spoke to me and told me that he and his angels were real, they loved us, and they are a gift from him. 
God gave me the greatest hug I have ever had. After realizing that I had yanked myself out of my body, I went midair and saw my guardian angels on each side. They were about eight feet six inches in height, and the wings were about five to six feet across. They told me how many people I need to help back on earth, and to look down at my body being looked at by the paramedics. That's when I realized that the afterlife is real, and God loves us. God told me before I go back to tell everyone that he loves them. It's that easy. Also, God said that he is long-suffering and will go to the end of the earth so that we can be with him. My angels told me that I would go back to earth and they were really happy that I chose to go back and do the work that was assigned to me. That is the end of Chris's account. Holy mackerel, can you see all the stuff packed in this? That is amazing. First off, and, and I, I want to give this little little preface to what I'm about to say, that first off, please don't ever think that suicide is a solution. It is not. And it is not what God wants us to do. Let's just say that he does not want us to do that. Doesn't this experience give so much hope and reassurance to those who have lost people to suicide? My goodness, oh, his first experience with uh, the other side, he, after killing himself, is that this hearing the voice of God, telling him that he, he is real, that God is real, that angels were real, that they loved us, that they're a gift from him. And then God gives him the greatest hug he has ever had. He, he says that God tells him that he will go to the ends of the earth so that to, to help us to do what we need to do to be with him. He's, he's doing all he can to make sure that we are with him. Oh, what a loving God we have. What a loving father. And I, for one, seeing the suffering of people around me, seeing my own struggles, seeing things that people are going through, I know the pain, maybe not to the extent some of you have felt for sure, but I know at least to some level the pain of looking at the world around you and saying, how can a God who loves us so much or claims to know us so much, how can he possibly justify what's going on around us? Well, I don't know the answer to that question. But what I can reassure you of is, as Chris says, God absolutely loves every one of us to a degree that goes way beyond what we can comprehend. Way beyond. And that we actually do have angels and God himself looking after us while we're here. Now what that means for us individually, what that means in terms of why we're suffering what we're suffering, or what we're supposed to be experiencing um, from this suffering, I don't know. I will say... Um, there, there's a, a listener that has been going back and forth with me about, about their experience. And, you know, I haven't gotten permission and so forth to share 
what they've shared with me, and they haven't written down the whole experience, so I'll, I'll just, you know, keep it anonymous at the moment, but, but they've talked about how, in their experience, there was this sense of graduation about this life, and, you know, remember, they came back, so they are still experiencing life now, which means they have more to do, of course, but even there, in that in that temporary visit to heaven, they had the sense of graduation about it, and that there were even these tokens of this graduation pendant, or I, I believe necklace is the term that was used in the in the account, where it, kind of a, a way of saying, you did it, you're doing it, you're graduating. And I think there is something to that. We are here for a reason. We are here to grow. We are here to learn. And that's going to be different for different people. And it's not fair for us to judge anybody. Uh, and, And it is up to us as individuals to do our best, to do what we came here to do, but also to recognize that many of us will not know what we fully came here to do until we get to the other side. Does that seem fair? Well, sometimes it feels fair and sometimes it really don't feel fair. But the point is that God loves us more than we think we we can imagine. And he is there to help us throughout this process. Okay, let's go on to Laura. Laura, also from enderf.org, says, At the same moment that the nurse noticed my state... I suddenly saw at the end of my bed a very white light that seemed alive. Then a silhouette took shape. At the same time, my abdominal pain vanished. I felt total well-being. The silhouette was very beautiful, tall gentleman. He appeared with a big book that he was carrying open on his left arm. He was at least two meters tall, He had long, fair-colored hair, framing a harmonious face. He had a deep look coming from his pale blue eyes. The gentleman had a beard. His outfit looked like a big white coat or tunic. He emanated enormous love and understanding. Telepathically, I heard his first question. Who would you like me to inform in case of... He questioned me kindly. I replied, inform my mother. She doesn't know that I'm not well. He asked, what do you wish of life? I replied, I so much would like to tell my children that I love them, that they should love life. I'm so unhappy. He said, look at your life. See how you can evolve. Feel your emotions. I then saw part of my life passing by. This was mainly my fears of my violent alcoholic husband, maybe my lack of courage to face the rest. Then I felt strength that I didn't know I had. I felt like a little brave soldier in myself and the desire to make a 360-degree turn. I felt like the doors of my new life were just asking to open. I felt love, an unconditional love, a state of grace. I had no notion of time passing. I remember that at 
the moment of coming back to this world of the living, that this gentleman, who was full of compassion, disappeared vaporously with the extreme white brightness. Each time when a blood bag was influencing my body, my mind went back to that state of bliss. Once roughly stabilized, I found myself in a surgery room, lying flat with the arms tied up crosswise. I felt that I had to make a decision. The anesthetist saw my tears and assured me that they would do everything possible to get me out of trouble. My only reply was tears running down my cheeks. I was able to tell him, I want to continue to love. While writing these few lines, I'm still crying. I then felt letting go of this sick envelope that was hindering me. I think that my soul found an exit through my breast. I saw the team silently preparing the instruments in haste. I was above the big lamp that lighted the table. Time didn't count anymore. The light came back. I was bathed in it, alone but not, in, not abandoned. I didn't see a tunnel. I took the decision with full determination to come back to my body. I felt myself gliding inside through my head. It was very painful. My mother came fast to my side, without anybody from the hospital having informed her. She told me that a strange feeling had stopped her in her everyday work and that she had pestered my father to bring her quickly to my side. She felt that I wasn't well. My father was stunned by such determination and did as she demanded. That is the end of Laura's account. Okay, there's some cool stuff in here. First off, a little bit of a veridical experience, right? Because, um, meaning uh, an experience that kind of provides evidence for itself, um, physical evidence for itself. So she, in her experience, she's talking to this, this man, um, very, very kind, loving gentleman, who asks her, who would you like me to inform in case, base, and, and she cuts off her sentence, but obviously in case she decides not to return, in case she ends up dying. And he asks, please, inform my mother. She doesn't know that I'm not well. So right there, we, we know that her mother does not know that she's in some kind of medical uh, distress, okay? Her mother doesn't know that she's in danger. I'm not exactly sure how her mother found out that she was at the hospital or, or something like that. It could be that she was in the hospital for something in, you know, for uh, routine uh, thing. Yeah, actually, I just scanned down. She was in for a hysterectomy. I'm, I'm guessing she had no reason to think there was going to be any problems. Maybe her mom knew that, that uh, there was surgery happening, but probably had no idea anything was going wrong and had no reason to think so. Anyway, um, so she asks her, please inform my mother. So her mother gets this just out of the blue sense that she needs to check on her daughter, who, who is, you know, obviously a grown um, independent woman. It's not like she's her minor daughter. Um, she's her adult daughter is you take care of herself just fine. And, and she, you know, her mom bugs her dad 
to bring her to the hospital. And her dad's like, what? You know, what's, I don't know. There's, what, what are you talking about? What? And, and so they come and clearly she was in a state of severe medical distress because she nearly died. And um, that provides just a, a little hint of evidence of the reality of her experience. Why would her mother get the prompting to come and visit her? Now, why wasn't it her father that got the prompting, or her sister, or whoever else she might have had in her life, her best friend? But the one that she requested that this being inform was her mother, and her mother gets the prompting. I think that's significant. It it may not be something that could stand up in a court session, but I consider it uh, a very veridical uh, evidence. Anyway, it, I, I just include that, you know, because it is kind of fun when we get the vertical experiences to point that out. Um, I also find it interesting that as she is talking to this gentleman, um, she's she she's talking to him and and he says what do you wish of your life you know what do you want to get out of your life what do you want your mortal experience to be for or to be worth to you and she says i so would like to tell my children that i love them that they should love life i'm so unhappy now how many of us feel that way at least at times sometimes for long periods of time where we realize, my life is so miserable. I just want my children to have a happier life than me. I think that's every parent's wish, for their children to have a happier life than they do. And at times, we recognize that I'm just an unhappy person. I don't want to be unhappy, but I'm just unhappy. And, and to recognize that, that, you know, I mean, she wants her children to love life. Go and love life. And, uh, and his response is interesting. He says, look at your life. See how you can evolve. Feel your emotions. And then she has a life review, at least a portion of a life review. And in the midst of this life review, when she's you know, seeing her fears of her violent alcoholic husband, she sees a lack of courage in her life and the things that she's doing. She says, Then I felt a strength that I didn't know I had. And then she says, I felt like a brave little soldier in myself. Now, I don't know if she's saying she felt as if there was this brave little soldier that kind of awakened in herself, or if or if she's saying that she felt herself like she was a brave little soldier. It's, it's kind of unclear, but the point is, is that she feels kind of this awakening of bravery that she didn't know was there. And then she has this desire to make a 360 degree turn. I think she means 180 degree turn. That's, <laughs> that's a common uh, uh, mistaken way of saying it. 360 degrees would be turning in a full circle and then continuing in the same direction. I think she means 180 degree turn to go back where she came from. I could be wrong. But anyway, so she's seeing, she says, I felt like the doors of my new life were just asking to open. There was something in her that was accompanied, as she says, 
by love, unconditional love, a state of grace that allowed her to see what was already there that she couldn't sense before. A sense that there are doors available to you that are just asking to open, that are ready to open when you are ready to open them. She did not feel them prior to this moment. And after this, she is, as she discusses it now, and as she, you know, writes her experience, she still tears up in discussing it. Um, the, the event occurred in 2008, but I suspect if you were to talk to her now, she would still feel this, uh, those emotions. My point in bringing up that aspect is that in her near-death experience, when she is reviewing her life, which she sees as being a fear-filled, uh, lack of courage life, she sees in herself something that was apparently always there, but she didn't know she had, that allowed for many other options. Now, whatever your life situation is, if you are feeling fulfilled and happy in it, fantastic. Keep it up and be willing and ready to, to change direction when the feelings come to do so. But for the time being, if you feel like you're on the right track, absolutely hold to it because it is very, that, that is what you're here to do. If you're, if you have that sense about you, if you do not, if you are one of the many, many, many of us, if not majority of us, that have this sense that there is more to be done, or that you just haven't really tried, or you feel like you've just kind of lived life going with the flow, lack of courage, maybe living by fear, something like that, just recognize that even though you can't always feel it, there is inside of you a strength that you do not know that you have. And there are doors to a new life that are just asking to open. I think it's fair to say that that is the case for all of us. Now, what exactly that new life will look like, that's totally going to depend on you and God and whatever choices you are to make. There are going to be things that you simply will never be able to control. For myself, for as an example, I have ADHD. I have been uh, diagnosed with it. I will have ADHD all my life. I will struggle with it all my life. However, I can use it for good, or I can use it to crawl up in a ball and and fear to do anything. You know what I'm saying? Whatever you're, you're going to be experiencing throughout your life that you can't control, you still have a choice of how you deal with it, how you, how you react with it. I, for myself, choose to use it as a, as a, a rocket engine, okay? It, it should not steer my life. I can't let it steer my life. That I have to work very hard on to make sure it doesn't steer my life. But it does propel my life. And if I use other things such as, you know, prayer, meditation, um, speaking with God, and my own interests and loves, and, and genuine passions, lasting passions to 
be more of the steering wheel, then that ADHD that I suffer can act to keep me moving forward in the things that I'm here to do. But I, for one, have to, I know that I have to know how to put on the brakes. I have to know where to allow, you know, who to allow to run the steering wheel because if my ADHD runs it, I will go in circles and, and, you know, uh, fly off ravines and I may end up in a much worse situation than I'm in. However, it is something that propels me forward. Now, for somebody with clinical depression or even chronic depression, it may be the opposite issue. They may have a propulsion issue. They may have in mind what they'd like to do with their life, but they just have no motivation. And so maybe they allow their depression to be something that gives them a sense of compassion that may be needed for their life work or for their for their occupational work or for their family life. Allow it to to feed that, but not to act as a propulsion because it will hold it back, right? It will keep you from doing anything. And, you know, anxiety, it's going to be something different. With uh, OCD, it's going to be something different. Uh, a difficult family situation, it'll be something different. Physical, uh, you know, disabilities, mental disabilities, uh, just, you know, occupational problems, uh, career issues, whatever the situation, recognize what you can't control and figure out what that is good for and allow it to do its thing because it will always do its thing regardless of whether you let it or not. But then know where to not let it do its thing, if that makes sense. So, anyway, my, my point is, is that there is a brave little soldier inside you that can help you through whatever it is that you need to do with your life to make it really worth what you came here to do. Okay, let's jump to the last one. This one is the, uh, it's probably about the same length as the previous one, but, uh, I didn't put these in any particular order except for their length. And this one is just a touch longer maybe than the last one. So anyway, this is Muriel, and she had her experience in 2009. Muriel says, Following a removal of my uterus, the day after the operation, I felt very tired and fuzzy. While I was checking the container that retrieves the result of the drain... I realized that it was filled with blood. I had time to alert the staff. They ran over and noted that my condition was deemed very worrisome. The first thing I felt was one of well-being that came over me. When I saw a white but not blinding light intensified, the more light appeared, the better I felt. The light eventually enveloped me like a sheet. As it did, I started to perceive a figure standing at the end of my bed, like a mirage. It was a very tall man who was about two meters, and who stared at me with eyes as blue as the sky, an intense and deep look that penetrates the soul. This man was of great beauty, his face illuminated by perfect features. 
He sported a short beard, his hair mingled in the white light. I felt in love before this being of light, a love I had never met before. As I write this, I am crying, despite the tears, that it, that event always moves me just as much. He wore on his left arm a large open book and a pencil or pen. I saw this object as living. He intensified his focus on my eyes and asked me a question. What do you want? He asked in a soft, audible voice. I want time to kiss my five children, the time to tell my family how much I love them. What do you want in your life? I would like to understand my mistakes. Why so many trials? I would like to understand nature, science, love. The man slowly wrote down all my wishes in his books and said, I'll show you your life. It still makes me cry. I saw my mistakes. I saw trees, nature, oceans, sky, animals, as they passed in front of my eyes. I understood, or rather I learned as in a lesson. All my senses were awakened and my entire being reacted. In fact, all was love. Even mathematics, which was really not for me. I felt like I was reintroduced to happiness, love, empathy, etc. I was given a mission with battered women because, unfortunately, I was one of those women abused by their husbands. I had no notion of how long both of us spent loving one another. It was an unconditional love without physical contact. It was through all thoughts, in all tenderness, and maybe in all simplicity. The white light dissipated. Then I came back to the world of the living with some violence and pain. I was again transferred directly to the operating room where I decided to let go of a body that was painful to me. I felt myself pop out through the top of my head. I hovered over this body that I no longer wanted as I saw the medical team busy itself in silence. The light reappeared. I followed her but saw nothing. I heard again a question. What do you want? I chose to come back to my body, although the temptation to continue on this path of love was attractive. That is the end of Muriel's experience. Now, if you, like me, caught yourself thinking, wait a minute, that's the same experience, isn't it? Yes, it is. And in fact, I had to go back and... Uh, scan through about halfway through I'm like wait a minute because I, I I was kind of surprised as I started that oh they you know it was the same um, setting that uh, you know the hysterectomy that uh, started this out and I scanned down through and uh, it has a second description of this experience below which is the exact account given previously now whether Lara or Muriel is either a real name. I, I suspect that they're probably both pseudonyms. Um, I'm guessing that she put her experience in twice. And that's okay, because she wrote it in a different context, and therefore had different things on her mind when she wrote it. And so she pointed out things that were not in 
the other experience. Now, you know, when I when I collect these, I will go. I'll be going through experiences, and and as I find one that I'd like to share, I check and make sure that there is permission for me to share it because there is, in many of the enderf.org experiences, many people do not want it shared beyond just their written account on the enderf. .org website. So if you want more experiences than what you get in the audio, you will find more on enderf.org. That said, most people do allow them to be shared, to be read, and so forth. And this is one of them. So when I was coming across these, I, you know, put them in a folder to share later, and both of them happened to be um, in that folder, and I just happened to read them one after another, and I find it kind of interesting. I suspect they were probably next to each other in line, which is why they came across each other. My guess is that I happened to read them on different days when I did, so I didn't notice that they were the same experience. So, with all of that, what are some things that she pointed out different in this accounting of her experience? Well, she talks about uh, more about her mistakes, um, which we kind of got a hint of in the other, uh, in the other experience. Though she does also point out that her, the suffering that she went through, the things that were the most painful in her life, the abuse that she suffered, ended up being a catalyst to her starting a mission of working with battered women. Now, that is the kind of thing that you hear in, you know, these motivational speeches and so forth all the time. How often do they happen in real life? Well, I would suggest probably more often than we think. Because what we suffer most in this life is often where our greatest contributions may lie. Obviously, this isn't always the case, but it's often the case. Where there is abuse, you are placed in a situation where you can help the abused better than, than just about anyone. Where there is a situation of mental or physical impairment, you are in a situation to better reach those who uh, struggle. I think in terms of my own life, I have had an interest and a longing for spiritual things all of my life. And this aching need to feel close to God. And it is part of that aching need that has led me to start this research and eventually to start this podcast. And I'm hoping that that ache that is perpetual for me ends up serving many others because of that. The hungering and thirsting for a spiritual things is, at least at times, a severe trial and other times a blessing. And I hope through this podcast it's a bit of a blessing. If there is something in your life that is a struggle, something that is, you know, if you were to look at your most difficult life trial, if you could call it that, the thing that is hardest in your life, the thing that is most painful in your life, is it possible that that thing could lead to a great service for others? It's something to consider. 
Now let's jump back to what we're saying about the differences between these two accounts. Another thing that uh, Muriel points out um, that is not in in Laura's account is the mention of nature and animals. I find this particularly interesting as a nature lover. She wants to know more about science, nature, and so forth. And she says, I saw trees, nature, oceans, sky, animals, as they passed in front of my eyes. I understood, or rather I learned as in a lesson. All of my senses were awakened and my entire being reacted. In fact, all was love, even mathematics, which of course she says was not really for her. All of it, nature, ocean, sky, animals, it's all love. How does that work? I don't know. I have suspicions. And I could go into a big ecological discussion about the geekiness of my interests in such things. I'm not sure that's the point of this here. But all of it, everything, life, the universe, the galaxy, the planet, it's all love. What does that mean? I don't know exactly. But I get the impression, if you imagine yourself encountering a concept or an idea where you're trying to quantify what is the, the overlying theory. You know, in science, they don't, they don't call theories those, you know, they don't mix up theory with hypothesis as we often do in the rest of the world. We you know, when we say, oh, I have a theory that this is the case, chances are what you really have is a hypothesis. A theory is generally considered something that is an all-answering, not all-all, but it, but it provides so many answers, so many solutions to so many things that it just seems to work. You know, the theory of evolution, it explains so many different things. The theory of gravity, for example, it explains so many things. And because it's the best theory that we have, the best overlying answer that we have, it's called a theory, scientific theory, whatever you want to, however you want to say that. And scientists are always on the lookout for the next big theory. Now, these people who go to the other side and they have these experiences and see so many things, they keep coming back and saying, it's all love. It's all love. And we say, well, what does that mean? That mean that, you know, that giddy feeling I have for, for you know, the cute girl in school, uh, that's love, isn't it, right? What about the feeling that you have for your dearly beloved pet who is, who is your dearest companion? What about the feeling that you have for um, the, uh, the suffering person on the street? Isn't that love? Now, these are all examples of what we in this life consider love. But when people get to the other side and they see how everything works, how the universe runs together, and how everything has its place in the universe, the, uh, 
the thing they keep seem, seeming to come back to, this universal theory of everything, if you will, the closest thing they can come up with to describe what it all is, is love. It seems to be the unifying theory of the universe. Now, because we're stuck in this mortal sphere and we're, you know, our brains are limited and all this stuff, we can't fully understand that now, but we can try. And we can certainly try to live in love, live for love, live with love as our motivating factor. And I think it gets us closer and more completely toward the truth than we could find by simply saying, ah, forget it, I I can't understand it, so I'm not even going to try. There's no point in giving up on that. But exercising love and showing love and being a vessel of love, whether that means extending a loving gesture or whether it means stepping in to defend or stepping in to fight for something, whatever the act of love is, I think that's a big part of why we're here, to learn the real, deep meaning of love. And I find that fascinating. And even if we can't fully understand it while we're here, we can get hints of what it means by the kind of choices that near-death experiencers make when they return. And though we could do an entire episode about the kinds of things people do when they return from near-death experiences, Muriel, or Lara, describes coming back and using the abuse that she suffered to reach out and help those who similarly suffer. I think that's a hint at what we're talking about when we're trying to ask ourselves the real definition of love. And with that, thank you again, all of you, for listening. Chaz and I thank you for listening to Near-Death Experience Podcast. You can reach out to your hosts by using Chaz, C-H-A-S, at ndepodcast.org and John, J-O-H-N, at ndepodcast.org. You can text or call the show at 970-633-2278. That's 970 970- NDE cast calling allows you to record your message in three minute increments if your message runs longer than three minutes just call back and we can splice the segments together follow us on Twitter Instagram and Facebook by searching NDE podcast on those sites and join our Facebook NDE podcast community Please leave feedback for the show on iTunes or via whatever application you use to listen to us. Doing so will allow our audience to grow and help spread the knowledge about spiritually transformative experiences to more listeners. You can help keep the show financially viable by purchasing Chaz's music or his book under the store link on the ndepodcast.org website or by going to patreon.com slash ndepodcast where you can make a one-time only donation or become an ongoing supporter. Whether you decide to write or call us or you choose to support the show, either financially or by writing a review or by listening and sharing us with others, 
we are so humbly thankful for you. We can't begin to express how much touching you spiritually means to us. Chaz and I thank you for joining us. We hope you keep listening and applying the understanding you gain from the show about your existence after this earthly life so you have a better life right now and to love one another. This is your host, John Messer, reminding you that it's all about attitude and gratitude. And our attitude should always be love.